0: A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother, her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God, so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So, although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Finally, he said to the disciples, Let's go to Judea. But his disciples objected, Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago the people in Judea were trying to stone you. Are you going to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely, but they, they can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. Then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he'll soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus had died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now, you really will believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, nicknamed the twins, said to his fellow disciples, well, let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, He was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary stayed in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. And everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? (laughs) Yes, Lord, she told him. I've always believed you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's come into the world from God. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only. If only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. Where have you put him? He asked them. And they told him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus wept. And the people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry when he arrived at the tomb. A cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Lord, he's been dead four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside. And then Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, I thank you for hearing me. You always hear me, but I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe you sent me. And then Jesus shouted, Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, Unwrap him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to draw six observations out of this passage. And, uh, well, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you to bring understanding. I ask God that as I speak, the words would be sharp and clear. I ask God that you would speak louder than my words, and that you would take my human words and that you would speak specifically and clearly into each heart what you are saying to them I ask that you would strengthen those who are weary I ask that you would rebuke those who are um, what's the word Uh, slacking off in their lives and and wasting their, their lives and making excuses for it I ask God that you would bring us all every one of us encouragement and draw us deeper into fellowship with you that we might know you better love you better and bring you great glory in Jesus' name. I got six points. First point is this Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he called them friends. I've talked last week about how, you know, make my heart a Bethany. Bethany being the place, Bethany being the place where Jesus went for comfort, the place where Jesus went for refreshment. Jerusalem was the place that was supposed to accept him, but it, it rejected him. But Bethany was the place, you know, a stone's throw from Gethsemane and a couple miles walk from Jerusalem. Bethany was the place where his feet were washed with tears. Bethany was the place where Mary sat at his feet and Martha served at table and Lazarus sat next to him as they shared fellowship. These were his close friends and he loved them dearly. What's on offer and what's, what's presented to, to us is not just, I want us to be a place for Jesus that refreshes Jesus. But he is a friend. He loves us. He is a place for us to find refreshing. He is the place for us to find safety and comfort and consolation. He doesn't call them servants. He he contradicts the servant attitude of Martha and and embraces the the friendship, the closeness attitude of Mary. And I want us to, to see that several times in this passage, the love that Jesus has for them is clear. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's in the gospel. It's for us, not just for them. So that's the first point. He loved them. Number two. Jesus raises Lazarus out of death rather than keeping him from experiencing death. Translation. I'm in covenant with God, but that does not mean that God will keep me from suffering. What that means is that God will be with me in the midst of suffering and he will raise me out of all the things that I have to endure. I wish it weren't that way, but it is that way. We are called to follow Jesus and become like him in his death. The great prayer of Paul in Philippians 3 is, I want to know him and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. We might wish for there to be a way that since he died we never have to but the truth is that if they hate him they'll hate us and that the path of Jesus is the path for the follower of Jesus. We wish that Jesus would show up early and keep Lazarus from dying but his way of dealing with Lazarus is I love you and I'm letting you go through this anyway and I will raise you from it. There's some there's this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays and he says now my soul is like weary to the point of death and what am I supposed to pray Lord save me from this hour no glorify your name what an awesome prayer What an awesome prayer. If we can pray that way, if we can think that way, if we can take our suffering and think, okay, this is not about me and my convenience. God's doing something. I'm on page 27 of a thousand page book and I don't even remember the beginning anymore because my brain's silly, but I certainly don't know the end. But God's doing something with my life and he's working everything for good because he loves me for my good, and he's with me, and that no suffering is going to even be worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to me in a moment. My life's short, eternity's long. The suffering you're going through, and I promise you there's a lot of suffering in the room, the the suffering you're going to, Paul says, it's not even worth comparing. He calls it light and momentary, next to the eternal weight of glory it's working in us. If we can just learn to pray, form Jesus in me and get glory for your name through this thing rather than just rescue me and make my life easier, I think we'll start to find a lot more traction. God lets lets us get in over our heads, so much over our heads, over our human wisdom, over our human goodness, over our ability to persevere even at times. In other words, he lets us come to the end of our meager resources. And he does this in love. We end up becoming dependent upon him out of necessity. Or we burn out and fade away. I kind of think that, you know, almost every Mary you've ever met at his feet used to be a Martha. Martha. Because the the pattern tends to be first we learn how to serve him, then we learn how to walk with him, and then we learn how to believe and watch him work. And none of us wants to suffer, but Christ doesn't get in deep without it, and Christ doesn't flow out without brokenness. And the thing that you think is killing you might be the very thing meant to redeem and save you, because people aren't your problem. Beyond the limits of our strength, wisdom, and love, we become dependent on him out of necessity and we're pushed beyond ourselves into him. And as that happens, something begins to shift. He becomes our treasure, not our beliefs about him, not our hard work for him, not our worship of him. He becomes more precious as we become more dependent and thus we ooze unknowingly ooze more of him to others than we did before. We feel worse often and get better. We look worse and more beautiful at the same time. We face ugliness but become beautiful. His cross is ugly, but it's the place of divine beauty because we see the "why" behind the "what. And the "what" of our lives may at times be absurdly beauty, I'm sorry, absurdly lacking in beauty. Why would this be the story of my life? This isn't what I intended. This isn't what I dreamed when I was in my late teens, you know, and dreaming, writing out the story of my life. Like Moses, sometimes we don't know our faces are shining. His story is fairly ugly in that it's resurrection from death, not rescue without death. And that story of beauty out of ugly, of life and beauty out of death and ashes, that has got to become our story. Brian Connolly recently, I don't know, months and months ago, but feels recent to my heart, prayed over me, he was prophesying over me, and all of a sudden he stopped and chuckled. And I don't really remember much anything else he prayed. I remember this. He said, Tim, some beauty can only come out of ashes. I said, I'm Taking it, and I'm gonna suck that dry. Third point I want to make Jesus' tears. His tears of sympathy, his tears of anger. There are three times in the, story, in the scripture where we find that Jesus weeps. Three times, do you remember him? Number one, he weeps tears of sorrow over Jerusalem. Number two, he weeps tears of suffering in Gethsemane, and this one. He weeps tears of sympathy in Bethany. I've heard preachers whom I greatly love and respect say that Jesus was crying because of all the unbelief around him. It does not resonate with my heart. Mary falls at his feet Weeps and says, Lord, if you'd have been here. And Jesus becomes overcome with tears and becomes angry. Is he angry at her? Or is he angry at death? Is he angry at sin and death and all that it has taken from the people he loves? He knows, he knows. He's about to raise Lazarus from the dead and yet he allows his heart to feel this moment with them. Death has stolen and bereaved and taken and oppressed and enslaved and it's wrong. And he weeps. He weeps because he's tender toward you and tender toward me. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Rather, we have a high priest who weeps with us in our tragedies, even though he is the resurrection and the life. So in your hour of grief, you need to know this, that the Lord is not high up in heaven with some perfect plan, unmoved and unfeeling, saying, deal with it. He's with you. He is the embodiment of compassion. He feels for you. And he would never command us to weep with those who mourn if he wouldn't do it. Fourth point. Jesus was not directed by human expectations, but rather he was directed by abiding in the Father. This is an interesting point. Several times we hear the Lord say in this passage, um, I prayed this out loud for their benefit. Several times in, in the life of Jesus, I hear him say this. Father, I didn't say this because you needed me to hear it, you needed to hear it from me, or that I needed to hear it. I said it out loud so the people around me would understand what, I'm, what is about to happen. In other words, there was, a, there was an Constant internal conversation going on between Jesus and the Father. A constant internal conversation in which Jesus knew completely that everything he was thinking to the Father, the Father was hearing and responsive to. And everything he was hearing from the Father was his marching orders. Everything I hear the Father saying is what I say and that's all I say. And everything I see the Father doing is what I set my hand to and nothing else. So think this through with me. That when Jesus finds out that Lazarus is sick, he doesn't visit. He delays two more days. He skips the funeral. Think about John the Baptist sends Jesus a message from prison when John the Baptist is doubting whether Jesus is the Messiah. This is his cousin and this is his buddy. Are you you the one? This is John the Baptist's moment of crisis and doubt. Jesus doesn't visit. He would make a horrible pastor by a lot of people's standards. <laughs> I'm, I'm straight serious. This is part of the reason for a point that I'm going to make later, which has to do with the, the forgotten beatitude. But Jesus is directed, Jesus is is kept by this constant, internal, secret conversation between him and the Father. He always knew Abba heard him, and he always knew he heard Abba. So when he tells us, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit, we need to hear the phrase, abide in me, as an, an alternative to abide in the expectations of others. And we need to hear it as the alternative to abide in the values I inherited from my family of origin. Abiding in Jesus is relearning from the Father a different set of values, and everything comes from this place. Abide in me, not the expectations of others, not the expectations you place upon yourself. Abide in me. So he doesn't come your your dear friend is sick he doesn't come he delays he skips the funeral he doesn't visit John the Baptist in prison why is this relevant because we often abide in all these other human yokes of expectation until the burden we carry is so heavy it weighs us down and we don't even know who we are anymore We take on yokes that aren't from him and they are so heavy We constantly feel like we're failing, we're so busy, we're so burdened. Jesus didn't live that way. On Judgment Day, just bear with me, on Judgment Day, we pass through fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So if it's wood, hay, straw, stubble, it burns. Notice all of those are light. But if it's heavy precious metals, gold, silver, diamonds, jewels, any of that kind of stuff, heavy, and the fire actually doesn't harm it at all, just frees it from any impurities that may be left over. Let me suggest that when we live from human wisdom, human need, And what I'm going to call ego farming. Here's what I mean by ego farming. When you know someone needs or wants strokes from you, they need you to tell them you're amazing. They need you to constantly reaffirm your love for them. Or their woundedness comes back, creeps right back in and refills that pond. And then you have a crisis on your hands and they're mad at you. So a lot of what we do in our human relationships is what I would call ego farming. Your flesh, your need to be approved, affirming them and soft, gentle hugs for them and you're amazing and trust me, I love you and I got your back and all these wonderful things that look like love but are actually just flesh ministering to flesh. I call that ego farming. Especially pastors get exceptionally skilled at reading people's brokenness and instead of confronting it, Acquiescing to it and being everyone's buddy and pollinating all the little ego flowers with tireless effort. It's exhausting. But it makes people very loyal to you. Loyal to you, though, is the problem. Not connected to the Father. Loyal to you. It's wood, hay, and stubble, human wisdom responding to human need. I would say the human wisdom is like wood. We're building all these scaffoldings and building all these structures because it's, we, have a, we, have a stru- we have a strategy now to, to get this thing going. We've got to get this strategy. We've got to respond to the human need. But human wisdom, human need, and what I call ego farming, that is wood, hay, and stubble. And Jesus doesn't do it. He's, ex- he's exceptionally confrontational. The person that I'm tempted to talk about how amazing they are and how wonderful they are, and he's just like, you have a problem. You're addicted to this. And I don't know what you're going to choose. And then he turns and walks away. And then he doesn't call them two days later to make sure they feel okay about the interaction. I'm just saying. He's so confrontational that to be around him is to either, tra- is to either be transformed or, or inspired to murder him. No, I'm straight up. I'm, I'm telling you the truth. Jesus is so confrontational that to be near him is to either change or hate him. But you you will not be cold or tepid toward Jesus. He doesn't have fans that end up liking him in the end. If you're the kind who's a fan, you end up being the crucify him type. Or you can be a follower and be transformed. Because he is confrontational. And he doesn't feed your ego. He doesn't feed mine. He's not stroking my ego with false prophetic words about how awesome I am. You know, weird stuff like, I got this word for 2017. Increase. Get a life. That is not a prophecy. And you are not a prophet. You're just a dork looking for approval. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. This is why people like me ended up killing Jesus. I guess that's true. But especially me. Religious leaders. You know what I'm saying? People who build build their life on trying to build something for Jesus. But the problem is, if it's wood, hay, and stubble, then when the real shows up, it reveals what I'm made of and what, what, is, what I built. And then I'm threatened and defensive and attacking. Sound familiar? It's the story of Jesus. All right. Ishmael was Abraham and Sarah's answer to the promise. Isaac is God's. And what we do in the flesh to fulfill the promise of God will always end up in conflict with what God does by the Holy Spirit. Always. If Jesus himself said, on my own I can't do anything, then how much more do we need to learn this lesson? If, see, Jesus, every miracle he ever did was actually just done by the Spirit. Something to think about if that same Spirit dwells in you. So maybe it doesn't depend on your track record or your momentum. Maybe it doesn't depend on who laid hands on you or what training you received. Okay. Point number five. The forgotten beatitude. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. Matthew eleven six. Both Mary and Martha, well, and me, have said many times, either to the Lord directly or just in our heart, if only Jesus had been there. if you would have just walked into the room physically, if you would have just come in the flesh, like it did what you did on earth, this would not have happened. I doubt I'm alone in feeling that way. If you would have walked into the room, everything would be different now, and I don't understand why you didn't come. Why are we offended by Jesus? Three reasons real quick. He demands too much. He doesn't meet our expectations. And he shows up late. He demands too much. He wants all. That's unreasonable. He expects us to love people who make our lives miserable. He expects us to give up things for him that he gave us for our enjoyment. How is that fair? I don't want to say, I don't want to give up on that. He's too costly, number one. He doesn't meet our expectations. I thought he was going to do this. He didn't do this. I thought he was going to show up in time and do that and the other, and he didn't do that. And the third one, of course, he shows up late. His way of resurrection, not protection. Who wants that? Who would sign up for that? Well, believers. (laughs) Right? Right? If he becomes your treasure, then, and that's the only path to get him as the treasure on the other side, then I'm willing to pay that price. At least that's faith, right? Sixth point. Well, I should summarize point five real quick. It is so common to be offended with Jesus. You know how many people have outgrown Christianity and it has nothing to do with the smart brains that are g- coming up with reasons why the Bible's not true and God's not who I learned in Sunday school anymore. It has nothing to do with that. They got offended by Jesus. They got hurt. They got burned out. They got hurt. Most likely they were a Mary, or I'm sorry, most likely they were a Martha, serving, working tirelessly and until they burnt out and Jesus didn't show up on time and Jesus didn't protect and after all I've done... It's not right that I would be treated like this. I don't trust your people. I still like Jesus. And then six months later, I've probably grown beyond Jesus. And then eight months later, I'm a humanist. And all that really happened is they got hurt and offended by Jesus. Do you know how imperative it is, guys, that we stay at his feet and receive his love? Do you, do you know how imperative it is? That's not like some extra special message for a few. Yeah. If we can stay at his feet and listen to what he said, receive his love, draw our life from the person of Jesus, out of intimacy, be directed by him, learn to hear his voice, believe his voice, obey his voice, we will have life because his words are spirit and life. He is the resurrection and the life. Yes, he is. Or we'll burn out. Or just or, or keep, keep going strong and resent anyone who's not hardcore like me. Be all those be, be, be the kind of Christian that doesn't glow. Do you know what I mean? People are like, "Oh, here he comes. Why, why do you look so tired, Miller? Oh, the usual. I was up all night praying for you to be more like me and Jesus. <laughs> oh, gross, Get away from me." You <sighs> know? <laughs> I tweeted that the other day. Anyway, final point, point number 6, Jesus is freedom. He is freedom to captives. With death is mighty, you guys. Death is look around. Everybody's dying still. Death still reigns on the earth, guys. It's the final enemy. It's not yet been destroyed. It's been defeated, but it hasn't been done away with. Death is mighty, but with three little words, Lazarus, come forth. He strips it of its prey. And then he says, one one four four, untie him. Let him go. Untie him. And the gospel is freedom. He came to proclaim freedom to the captives. He, he who has the Son is free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Therefore, don't let yourself be bound. That's, right. that's an interesting point. He sets us free, but then we have to not let ourselves be bound. And then look at what he says to the people around. Jesus doesn't say, come here, let me untie you and let you go. He says to the people around Lazarus, untie him and let him go. Now look, life can only come from Jesus. We can't make it. But, but what's interesting is something that's alive can be caught and he says to the people around Lazarus, untie him and let him go. Sometimes I need you to untie me and let me go. Sometimes you need me to untie you and let you go. But the gospel is freedom. A lot of times I am haunted by John eleven eleven. Lazarus is asleep and I go to wake him up. I sometimes feel like the beloved, the church, is asleep, including me. And Jesus yearns to wake us up. And sometimes, I think, 1144 is the, is the word of the hour. That we're alive and we're awake, but we're bound up in all kinds of things. We're trapped and snared in sins and disappointments and discouragements and guilt and shame and unmet expectation and hurt and wounds that have not been allowed to be healed by Jesus. Amen. Upset about many things. Claiming we're okay and pushing down the hurt. Putting on a brave face, but bound. Christ would set us free, and he would use others to do it. There's a reason that most revivals start with somebody getting extremely vulnerable in public. That's terrifying. Hey, guys this is what's really going on inside my heart. And, and then it breaks something loose. They get free. And the people who are like, oh no, he said what? Then they see that joy on his face and they see the lightness in his spirit and step. And then she comes forward and she says, this is what's going on with me. There's something about confess your sins, your struggles, your hopes, your wounds, your dreams. Pray for one another that you might be healed. Confess your sins to one another. If we have fellowship with one another, the blood of Jesus, it's interesting. If we have fellowship, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. How does, it's an interesting thing. We're made for freedom. We're made for freedom. It's like no wonder Jesus weeps. We're made for freedom, but we need each other to set us free, which means I better learn how to set you free, and I better learn how to let you minister to me. I'm not that great of a believer, but I'm very good at a couple things. I'm very teachable. And I'm very willing to let you love me. And that has been my salvation. Go ahead and stand in let's pray. Lord Jesus, I... I worship you today. I thank you today. I say you are the resurrection and the life. I know you have stripped death of its power. I know that if I live and I believe in you, death, I never die. Death has no mastery over me, whether in life or when my body passes away. That I love you now. You love me now. I'm in you both now and forever. I thank you that that's true. I thank you that that's true for Molly Lauk, as she has cancer and your spirit is in her and Jesus is in her, the resurrection power is in her and she has no fear. Amen. The devil can't boss her around because you are the Lord Amen. over death. You are the resurrection and the life. And God, I thank you that you're teaching us through Jesus not to, be li- not to be led around by human yokes, human weights, human expectations, but to be directed out of a love relationship with you that we carry in our chest secretly, that you see and hear everything we think to you and you even hear the prayers that we don't know how to put into words but the spirit groans for us beyond words and you hear and you translate that as the perfect prayer to bring your will into our lives. Thank you God that every suffering isn't even worth comparing to the glory about to be revealed. Thank you God that even though you allow us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death you are with us and you carry us and you empower us. I ask God in Jesus' name for more. I pray that the sweetness of Jesus, the gentleness of Jesus, would overtake and overcome us, that we wouldn't be so cocky and so brash and bold, and I'm praying mostly for me, that zeal would not really be the main characteristic of us, but but mercy and good fruit and kindness. Because we've been tenderized and softened and we let you leak out now, whether we know it or not. We look to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you guys. As you know, business meeting right here, right now. Fundraiser meal in the fellowship hall.